a little girl dressed in her Sunday best was running as fast as she could, trying not to be late for Sunday school. As she ran, she prayed, Dear Lord, please don't let me be late. And as she was running and praying, she tripped on a curb and fell, getting her clothes dirty and tearing her beautiful dress. She got up, brushed herself off, and started running again. This time she prayed, Dear Lord, please don't let me be late, but don't shove me either. (laughs) There are different ways in which we can experience the hand of God in our lives. And there are times when it feels as though he gives us a little shove to get us moving. Call it a nudge. Call it a little push. Well, whatever you call it, it comes from a wise and good God who knows what it is we need to get going. This morning we're brought face to face with a man who gives his personal testimony of a time in his life in which he felt the effects of wrestling with the sovereign will of God. We're brought up close this morning to one who considered himself king of the jungle and no doubt was at this time the king of the greatest empire in the world. Everyone feared him. King Nebuchadnezzar had popularity. He had power. He had a palace. But he also had a problem. And it was a big problem. It is a drug that when taken gives us a distorted view of reality. And we are all drug users when it comes to this drug. For none of us can claim exemption from it. C.S. Lewis called it the greatest sin in the world. I think Benjamin Franklin nailed it. When he said, there is perhaps not one of our natural passions so hard to subdue as pride. Pride. He goes on to say, beat it down, stifle it, mortify it as much as one pleases, it is still alive. And even if I could conceive that I had completely overcome it, I should probably be proud of my humility. Well, Nebuchadnezzar was a man full of himself. And as the saying goes, a man wrapped up in himself makes for a very small package. And Nebuchadnezzar is about to learn how small he really is before the great and powerful king of kings. The one who conquered the entire existing world at that time was about to be humbled. Reminds me of an incident in the life of the former heavyweight boxer James Tillis. Tillis was a cowboy from Oklahoma who fought out of Chicago in the early 1980s. He relayed the story of the first day in the Windy City. He said, I got off the bus with two suitcases under my arms in downtown Chicago, and I stopped in front of the Sears Tower. I put my two suitcases down, and I looked up at the tower, and I boasted, I'm going to conquer Chicago. When I looked down, my two suitcases were gone. (laughs) God has a way of putting us in our place. I want you to notice the very last sentence of chapter 4 of Daniel. 
Go there with me. The very last sentence of Daniel chapter 4. It serves as the summary statement of the chapter and the takeaway for this morning. This is what I want you to go away with more than anything else. So look with me at verse 37. Verse 37. It says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. Now grab this right here. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Underline that, write it down, put it on an index card. I don't care what you do with it, but do something with it. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Pride comes before fall, Proverbs 16, 18 says, and a haughty spirit before destruction. We have this morning one man's story of one such destruction, of such a fall. Today what we have in Daniel chapter 4 is one man's story of being led from the pinnacle of pride through the valley of humiliation to the praise of God. He was led from the pinnacle of pride through the valley of humiliation to the praise of God. Now you may disagree with me on this, but I believe this is a story of one man's conversion. Some do not see this account as an indication of Nebuchadnezzar's genuine faith in the one true God, but rather just an acknowledgement of of Israel's God by Nebuchadnezzar being greater than his other gods, that simply Israel's God he added to his God collection. Some see it that way, no genuine conversion. That's certainly possible. I just see such a marked change and where Nebuchadnezzar was, and where he ends up in chapter 4. There seems to be a renouncing of sins and repentance. God promised to restore his prosperity if he did what? Repented of his ways. And the king's prosperity does return to him, it tells us in verse 36. So I tend to think this conversion is the real deal. I could be wrong on this, and others right on this. I'm willing to admit that. You can ask Nebuchadnezzar when you see him in heaven. (laughs) You see where I land. Now what we all can agree on is that this mighty man has fallen, and he's fallen hard. We have his personal testimony in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. Need to be following along. It's always helpful if you do. Verse 1 of chapter 4 says, King Nebuchadnezzar, this is his writing this year, King Nebuchadnezzar to the peoples, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world. And the king goes on to say in verse 2, It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. On center stage is one man's story of how the mighty have fallen. But behind the scenes is the working of a mighty God through one humble instrument named Daniel. What I don't want us to miss is the power of one man, Daniel, who made a difference in his world. And so while we hear of this man's story of being led from the pinnacle of pride through the valley of humiliation to the praise of God, be well aware that behind the scenes was the influence of Daniel. As Nebuchadnezzar tells his story of pride, humiliation, and praise, it should be an encouragement to us of the difference we can make in the life of others. Never underestimate the power of your influence. 
The contrast is obvious between the humility of Daniel and the pride of the king. Well, the mighty have fallen. Look, look, let's look at this. Here's one man's story. It begins at the pinnacle of pride, point number one. The pinnacle of pride. Now, none of us are exempt from pride. None of us. I'm not exempt from pride. There was a pastor who received this nice note from somebody in the church saying how great he was and how good of a preacher he was. After reading the note, he said to his wife, how many great preachers do, you, preachers do you suppose there really are in the world? And she replied, well, one less than you think. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. As the saying goes, behind every great man is a woman rolling her eyes. Yes. None of us are exempt. None of us are exempt from it. Can't get any shot for it to take it away. It's been said, pride is like a beard. It just keeps growing. That's why we must shave it every day. Every single one of us in this room deals with pride. If you don't think so, there it is. And even if it's sleeping for a moment, it still roars and can easily pounce on us, looking to devour us. Look with me again at Daniel chapter 4. As noted in the opening verses, the king addresses the entire empire, offering praise for what has happened in his life. What he's about to do is tell them of the worst experience in his life, yet the best thing that ever happened to him. Do you know experiences like that? I do. The king then relays the sequence of events which began at the pinnacle of pride. Follow along, verse 4. Verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. And when the king says there, he was at home in my palace, it would be better to translate that as at rest or at ease in my palace. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, right at this moment, as he relays these events, was enjoying the good life. He was enjoying peace. He had thousands of Jews working for him. He had a son who could be the future heir on the throne. He was content. He was prosperous. Life just could not get any better than this. He did not need God. That's about to change. In verse 5, the king says, I had a dream that made me afraid. Now that's an understatement. The word afraid here is the thought of extreme terror or fright. Now, it's in verse 10 where we pick up what was so disturbing uh, to the king. So follow along with me in your text, beginning with verse 10. We're going to read the dream, that which was on his mind. That's what kept him up. Verse 10, these are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the beasts of the field found shelter, and the birds of the air lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. And the visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked, and there before me was a messenger, a holy one coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from under its branches. But let the stump, verse 15 says, but let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground and the grass of the fields. Get this. Let him be drenched 
with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. They're talking about the king here. Let his mind, verse 16, let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times, which means seven years, pass by for him. Wow. That's the king's dream. And even though he could not make complete sense of it, the image playing over around in his mind is of a tree once prosperous, large and strong, producing abundant fruit that would be chopped down, leaving only a stump. He knew this was no ordinary dream. He knew this wasn't caused by something he ate. But it was supernatural. And and if left unexplained, was just going to eat him alive. Now, it's right here. I just want to hit the pause button for a moment on Nebuchadnezzar's pinnacle of pride, and I want us to peek behind the curtain to see the humble instrument of God, Daniel. Look at verse 18. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belshazzar, meaning Daniel, tell me what it means. For none of the wise men of my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. The king trusted only one man to interpret his dream, and that was the man Daniel. Let's not miss this. There is a close relationship between the king and Daniel. This is likely 20, 30, or even 40 years after Daniel's first arrival as captive back in chapter 1. And the king has watched this man demonstrate the power of God. He has observed Daniel live his life of uncompromising faith year after year after year. It's safe to assume that since Daniel was such a man of prayer as we're going to see in chapter 6, Daniel prayed for the king for several years. Was Daniel really making a difference in his world? I mean, no conversions are reported. No other captives seem to join his team. He could have easily said, hang this. But Daniel remained faithful where God had placed him. He made himself available. The drought we were talking about didn't see any results. And what Daniel teaches us is that we need to get in the presence of those who need to hear the truth. Be present, and who knows, but that you may be called upon to speak the truth to a troubled heart at some point. Daniel has been gifted by God to interpret dreams, brings the meaning of the dream to the table. Now stay with me here. Verse 24 through 26, speak of what all this means for the king. Look at verse 24. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree that Most High has issued against my my Lord the king. You will be driven away from people and you will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times, seven years will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its root means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Do you see what this is saying? The king is about to go from the palace to the pasture, from grandeur to grazing, from the best to the beast. And this is the message Daniel has to deliver to this prideful king. See, so often it isn't what we say that's the problem, it's how we say it. There's something worth noting if we're serious about being a difference maker in our spheres of influence. 
I want you to go back with me to verse 19. Verse 19. Context. This is that moment when Daniel knew full well what the dream meant to the king. He's about to speak some hard truth to the king. There's something here in verse 19 that impresses me, and I hope it does the same thing for you. Verse 19. Now, Daniel, also called Belshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time. His thoughts terrified him, so the king says, Belshazzar, Daniel, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. Folks, this is significant to our making a difference in the world right here. We see Daniel's heart. Daniel is genuinely broken up over the meaning of the dream. He does not wish ill or harm upon this pagan king. Now, if we pay close attention, we can learn from Daniel here. Because be honest. When someone comes, something comes out about a political figure that you don't particularly like, or news about a famous celebrity who has flaunted success, isn't there just a little bit of rejoicing in you? Be honest. I mean, I understand about rejoicing in our God when justice is served. I get that. But balance that with a heart that breaks for those people who face God's judgment. Dare to learn something from Daniel's example of submission to those in authority. Now, I'm not going to be popular in saying this. It's never stopped me before. But bashing of politicians is out of place for the Christian. You get that? It is. I'm not saying don't hold our leaders accountable. I'm not saying we can't speak of the issues we disagree with or believe are morally wrong, but I am saying wishing them harm or that they fall or speaking ill of them is not in keeping with true biblical submission. It's not. Furthermore, it does not put us in a position to be God's man or woman in the hour of opportunity like Daniel was. Daniel is uniquely prepared and empowered for such a time as this. It pained him to tell the king the message. It should pain us to speak of the bad news of the coming judgment of Christ on all those who have not put their faith in him. It should pain us. I believe it was Spurgeon who said, we should never talk about hell without shedding tears. Don't think for a moment that Daniel dances around the truth. He says quite plainly to the king in verse 27, renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. Daniel was no softy when it came to truth. He spoke it plainly and decisively, but with a broken, humble heart. May our hearts, may my heart ache for those who will face the judgment of God. May our hearts be filled with compassion for those who don't know him. And when having to speak the hard truth even to another believer, may your heart be broken as you speak it. What does it require? Humility. Humility. Behind the scenes of this man's story of pride is a humble messenger who is true to character and he delivers this dangerous message with tact and grace once again. Now, i got to go back to Nebuchadnezzar. i kind of like to stay away from this whole subject of pride if I could, but I can't. We shouldn't. 
We left Nebuchadnezzar at the pinnacle of his pride. And what we have before us is a clear example of what happens when pride fuels our life. We see here a graphic picture of the insanity of pride. We get a close-up look at pride's beast-like qualities and how it can lead to nothing but sheer madness when it's coddled. I ask, is there a little Nebuchadnezzar in you? Is there a little Nebuchadnezzar in me? How is pride right now preventing you from admitting some wrong? How is pride right now keeping you from an apology you know you need to make to someone? Do you need to do some shaving of the beard of pride? Will you be honest about some area in your life that that needs to be addressed? Will you quit pretending to be something you are not? Because that's pride. Don't be like the man Zeke from Texas. One day Zeke was walking along the street and he happened to, to shuffle into the blacksmith shop. What he didn't know was just before he got there, the blacksmith had been working with an uncooperative horseshoe and beat on it till it was black. It was still hot when the blacksmith tossed it over into the sawdust. Zeke walked in, he he looked down, and he saw the black horseshoe, and and, and he picked it up, not knowing it was still hot. And instantly, he dropped it to the ground. The blacksmith looked over his glasses and said, Kind of hot, ain't it, Zeke? And Zeke replied, Nope, just doesn't take me long to look at a horseshoe. (laughs) Wouldn't admit, wouldn't admit. Oh, how we hate to be honest about things as they really are. Don't we? I'm just looking. Not a big deal. No, that wasn't. No, not what you think. I have it under control. Will you admit you're wrong before pride comes along and destroys you? Nebuchadnezzar's led from the pinnacle of pride through the valley of humiliation. The king tells of how the nightmare of a dream becomes reality. Verse 28 Verse 28 of Daniel 4, it says, All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 29, notice these first three words. Twelve months later. Folks, those are grace words. God gave the king twelve months to change his ways. Here's the dream. Here's the interpretation of it. Here's what's going to happen to it. To you, I'll give you twelve months. That's grace. And after such a powerful dream, you would have thought in those 12 months, he would have humbled himself before God at that moment. He did not. I remind you of last week. It's very likely at the scene of the three men, the fiery furnace happened over 20 years ago, maybe even 30 years ago. I can't be dogmatic about that, but it's my guess. But no matter how far back it really was, you would think that after an experience with three men, whose God outmuscled and embarrassed you on your home turf like that of the fiery furnace incident, it would cure a man of his pride. Oh, how pride runs so deep. Circus acrobat Philippe Pettit was rehearsing in Florida. He fell about 30 feet to a concrete floor. Pettit rolled over on his stomach. He began pounding the floor with his fists, and he cried, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. I never fall. Guess what? The mighty king is about to fall and fall hard. So a year later, while the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace, not the first time 
we found someone found trouble on the roof of his palace. <laughs> He's on the roof of his palace. The king says, verse 30. Notice verse 30. Is not this the great Babylon? I have built as the royal residence, catch this, by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Now, if you underline in your Bible, underline two little words of great significance, by and for. Whenever we think of ourselves as the cause and source of any greatness, power, or success, Pride is right there. Bye. Whenever we do what we are doing for our glory, recognition, and fame, pride is right there. For. Where do you find yourself saying, I have built this by my power. I have done this by my ability. What do you, to what do you point and, and say, it, it, it is for my glory. This is for my recognition right here. People notice it. The king struts around the roof of his palace bragging about what he's done. I love verse 31. I love verse 31. It says, the words were still on his lips. (laughs) They weren't even out yet. The words were still on his lips and a voice came from heaven. I mean, God's patient, but his delays in life are extensions of his grace and opportunities to change. Don't test the patience of God. His patience ends and without delay will humble those who walk in pride. And verse 33 says, immediately, immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. Immediately. How quickly God can reduce a person in power just like that. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. The king's led from the pinnacle of pride to the valley of humiliation. The king learns about the birds and the beasts. He was driven away from people and he ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with dew, of the dew of heaven, until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claw of a bird. He lost his sanity. He became like a madman. Here's a not-so-flattering thought. Pride puts us in a class with animals. You heard about the man who went to a psychiatrist and said he believes himself to be a dog? The psychiatrist says, get up on the couch and I'll examine you. The man says, I'm not allowed on the couch. (laughs) I kind of like that. Well, whether it's a mental illness going on for Nebuchadnezzar, we must realize it didn't come in a vacuum. This insanity is directly related to what happens to a mind that is totally preoccupied with itself. Let's feel the insanity of our pride. Consider how it's keeping us from breaking the vicious chain of a personal struggle in our life because we won't deal with it in our prides. How does pride have you all locked up inside, unable to escape? How is it leading you to to some crazy behavior? to doing the same thing over and over and over again, hoping for different results. Allow God to lead you away from the pride of self through the valley of humiliation as you feel his loving hand of discipline in order to set you free. And then come to the next stage in your journey with the Lord. Let it lead you to, thirdly, the praise of God. The praise of God. The insane king 
looked to the heavens. He found the God of heaven. His core belief was changed. He came to the realization that God is the one in absolute control of all things. And what breaks the grip of pride more than anything else is a revolutionary change in the way we think about God. Look at verse 34. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. My sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High, honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? You see, the best way to keep our pride in check is to praise and delight in the sovereignty of God. We're about this big when we have big thoughts of God and yet he wants to use us. To walk humbly in confidence that God rules. To live in a quiet awareness that God does what he pleases, that everything he does is right and that all his ways are just. So here recorded for us, is one man's story of being led from the pinnacle of pride through the valley of humiliation to the praise of God. What's your story? Where are you in this journey? Where is there pride in your life that needs to be broken? What are the little empires we invent within ourselves in which we crown ourselves as king? If you refuse to deal with it, And God will take you through the valley of humiliation. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And perhaps God's doing that in your life right now. Lift your eyes to the heavens. Cry out to him. You may be in the midst of one of the worst experiences in your life, yet the best thing that could ever happen. It's then that God can use you as his humble instrument. Oh, break the pride in our life. Once Churchill got into an argument with one of his servants. At the end of it, Churchill, his lower lip jutting, said, You were very rude to me, you know. The servant, still seething, replied, Yes, but you were rude to me also. And Churchill grumbled, Yes, but I am a great man. Ouch. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Remember that. How's pride showing up in your life? Is it keeping you from making something right with someone? Is pride stagnating your growth? Is it stifling your relationships with others? Don't delay. Deal with it. Deal with it. Back many years ago now, two ships collided in the Black Sea off the coast of Russia. Hundreds of passengers died as they were hurled into the icy waters below. News of the disaster was further darkened when an investigation revealed the cause of the accident. It wasn't a technology problem like radar malfunction or even thick fog that caused the problem. The cause of the accident was human stubbornness. Each captain was aware of the other ship's presence nearby. Both could have steered clear, but according to news reports, neither captain wanted to give way to the other. Each was too proud to yield first. And by the time they came to their senses, it was too late. They collided. What price 
Are you willing to pay for your stubbornness in dealing with pride? You have to come to that. Those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. Give it to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, help us in our pride. It's not just the story, the Bible, that tickles us. It's a real-life account of a man who was humbled by you, the mighty God. May we take it to heart. There's Nebuchadnezzar in me. There's Nebuchadnezzar in me. I'm not beyond that. Help us to break the pride in our lives as we can only do it by your power and grace. We can't do it on our own. So the first thing we have to do is come in brokenness before you and say, I can't break it. I need your help. I need you. Whatever it is, Lord, deal with us on it. For your glory, for your honor. In Jesus' name, amen.